Hi everyone, and welcome to Quality Talks. I'm Kathy Balding, and our Quality Talker today is Dr. Michael Walsh, Chief Executive of Cabrini Health. Michael has led quality and safety in healthcare at health service, state and national levels in Australia and in other countries. Today, I'm hoping to find out what makes him tick and to tap into his wisdom on leading healthcare safety and quality. Here's Dr. Michael Walsh. Welcome, Dr. Michael Walsh. Good afternoon, Kathy. And thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. So, to go back to when we met, Michael, uh, I was working for ACHS, I think, the Australian Council on Healthcare Standards, and you were the Director of Acute Health Services in the Victorian Department of Health. Yep. That was 1994. Even then, you were known as a doctor who was a champion of improving quality in healthcare. So, what originally led you to your interest in healthcare quality? Well, I suppose that almost goes to why I got myself into medical administration in the first place. And I suppose I had the view that um, as a person with a clinical background, you can be equally effective at improving the um, performance of the health system and its ability to deliver good outcomes for patients by operating at the policy level uh, as you can by sitting across table from individual patients. So I've always felt that if you could um, uh, move the policy levers in the right direction, um, you could uh, make it easier for clinicians to do the right thing um, uh, if they're supported by the right financial and uh, financial incentives and other features of the system. So you can make it easier for more clinicians if you're working at policy level? I believe that's to be, to be the case and I still believe it today. Um, I think that um, th there has uh, in the Australian system and also in some other systems I've worked at been a sort of gulf that has developed between the management side and the policy side of the equation and the clinicians and I think it's, it's clear that for us to develop and maintain a high-performing health system, we need to have good clinical engagement uh, in policy and management decisions. Now that doesn't mean that clinicians make the policy and do the management because they're clinicians, they're not necessarily trained in those areas, but it is very powerful and very helpful to have uh, folk who are uh, versed in both sides of the equation to try and facilitate that clinician engagement. So I think that has driven me really from my very early days. Yeah. And it's interesting, you should say that, because you were still in your departmental role when the Quality in Australian Healthcare Study was released in 1995, showing that Australian hospitals were harming 16.6% of their patients. So what do you remember about the reaction to that report and what changed as a result from your perspective? Well, it, it received considerable media attention, uh, I think first and foremost, before it really received political attention and bureaucratic attention. So it seems to me it went in that order. The media picked it up, thought uh, this is an incredible story, almost unbelievable. Uh, and, that, um, uh, and that got the politicians interested and that in turn got the bureaucrats interested. Um, 
it, it wasn't a new story, Packard, really. It was a story that um, had its origins in the US and the methodology that, that was used was essentially the same as the US methodology um, some three or four years beforehand. So um, my own personal view at the time was that I thought that um, I found the figures, I thought the figures were on the higher side uh, and were certainly higher than the equivalent figures in the States. But nevertheless, it, it for the first time, quantified a substantial problem and I think it was a real wake-up call um, once that public interest was generated um, to those of us in policy and uh, bureaucracy type positions to come up with some um, uh, measures and means to verify whether or not this is all true and secondly to do something about it. Yeah. So was that the sign effect when I thought that people went looking for verification? Yeah, I think so. I think people um, people uh, didn't initially take the files um, of the report at face value and ask questions about, well, uh, is this true? And I think in those early days if you spoke to the average um, Senior hospital manager or um, board uh, board member or board chair, the feeling was, well, um, I just can't put that into the context of what I see going on in my organisation. Yeah. Um, so it was very much uh, people responding on an anecdotal basis to what was a, um, a more global and, and quantifiable study. Yeah. And I think that, I, I don't think people could join the dots in those no. in those days. No. And so you then went on to be chief executive um, for the large public sector health groups hospital, and then they started health. So you were given the the, the job of joining the dots in in that organisation, really. So how did you go about leading facing quality in your first chief executive role? Um. Well, I think in, in any in any such role, um, you have to first of all uh, take the time to understand the culture of the organisation and the way things are done uh, in in that organisation. And um, I I thought that by contemporary standards, the Alfred had a, a pretty good story to tell. So there was. Um, quite active involvement of the doctors at that time in uh, audit uh, and I think that um, I remember when I first joined there going along to the morning and, um, and uh, there was um, quite a bit of data collection that was being undertaken at that time, albeit generally uh, labour intensive different databases all on a sort of the, the equivalent of that time of an Excel spreadsheet. Um, Sort of driven by the registrars, um, so there was there was a general interest in the um, in the clinical leadership in audit as a key tool to review um, uh, mortality and to review um, some clinical outcomes, but no systematic systems built into the um, the administrative infrastructure of the Alfred to collect this information. Um, when you um, moved away from the clinical uh, work base and into the management and governance of the organisation, no real systematic collection of quality indicator data 
we, we did in those days participate in the ACHS clinical indicator program, but it didn't really go anywhere. Like you would get a report, but it essentially went to the medical director and pretty much stayed there really. There wasn't a there wasn't any sense that the organisation had set itself a series of targets around um, different aspects of um, of the ACHS clinical indicator program. The requirement in those days was simply that you collected the data and that you sort of moved from point A to point B. Um, so I suppose what I found, those, those, those were the general organisational issues that I found. There was one other thing that I found which was a real opportunity for change. We had um, two uh, what I would regard as catastrophic uh, cases um, that uh, had gone to the coroner and were in the press and I well remember that there was um, there was a letter to the editor of the Age, I think, um, a month or two after I arrived, relating to a long-running um, uh, case of an elderly lady who had died on the wards um, of uh, really of an acute asthma exacerbation. And uh, anyway, uh, the, the discussion, the letter to the editor uh, referred to the Alfred as. Um, akin to the, the tilling fields in uh, Cambodia. So there was this sort of sense, really um, uh, a real sense of uh, anger and frustration on the behalf of the, um, of the patient's uh, family and advocates on the one hand and on the parts, on behalf of the Alfred on the other about, um, about what happened to this individual and the reputation of the organisation. So that proved to be a, a, a real um, vehicle and I remember that the attitude of the hospital to this was um, was very adversarial, was, was one of sort of uh, denial of a siege mentality that they're all against and I remember very early on meeting with the family to, to understand what, what their concerns were. Much of their concerns was the sort of stonewalling the, uh, of the hospital really to giving them any information uh, which in turn was based on legal advice that that sort of information would be prejudicial. So that was a real watershed time to change long-standing practice and culture about um, what, what, what eventually became open disclosure. Yeah. Yeah. You were definitely ahead of your time there Michael because I remember you being on the ABC radio <laughs> in the morning with John saying, I remember hearing it driving into work one day and he challenged you, I think it probably was about that particular case, mm, and, uh, and you said, yes, uh, we are at fault and there's been, um, there's a, there's a, been a, a problem with the way we've managed it and we've learned from it and we, we won't do it that way again. And there were about 10 seconds of radio silence while John Payne picked his jaw up from the ground and then he said, Oh, you agree with me? And you said, yes. <laughs> and it was, that was a moment, Michael, for me, and you know, I think it was a moment for a lot of people, because that wasn't at all the way things had been managed in the past, really in healthcare generally. Mm. Mm. It was a big change, um, a, big, a big change at the Alfred, and I think it was, um, it was the beginnings of a change um, uh, in, in Australia too about the importance of open disclosure, and as you know, that became a more important topic uh, over the coming years for both the national and the state quality councils. Yes, yes, indeed it did and remains so uh, to this day. 
So there'd been another activity in quality up until the late 1990s, and as you were saying, um, there, were, there was medical staff involvement in reviewing practice, um, however, however that was being carried out in different facilities. But there wasn't widespread acceptance of a systematic approach, as you've said. So what were the concrete barriers to you as a chief executive to, to leading and driving quality improvement? Well, I, I remember um, in my early days at the Alfred spending a lot of time going around to doctors and talking to them about the findings of the quality of Australian healthcare study. And I think it's fair to say there was just general disbelief of that, that um, the findings were a sort of glitch really. So um, I think the, a big challenge in those early days was to try and um, convince people that there was some uh, credibility to these findings, that they were remotely believable. And I remember um, I remember doing the maths on the number of deaths in the hospital. So um, according to the maths, and I remember this, but in those days there were about um, 800 patients who would die at the Alfred each year. And the Alfred's are sort of high complexity, high intensity hospital. In those days it had the only trauma centre, so there, you know, there was a, the case mix would tend to indicate it would have a higher mortality rate. But um, I crunched through the numbers and according, if, if you simply took the Australian, um, uh, the same thing, quality Australian healthcare study and replicated it beyond for about 200 of those 800 would have died because of preventable causes. So I remember, um, starting a, a, a monthly mortality collection um, which uh, tried to differentiate um, folk who uh, on the clinical grounds uh, came in with a diagnosis that would have a, a, a reasonable high likelihood of ending in um, death versus those who, um, who had deaths that were uh, unpredictable. And we started some work just to try and work on that subgroup of patients where the, you know, there wasn't particular controversy about the endpoint they had passed away. The question was um, uh, what what component of them, uh, what, what proportion of them passed away because of events that occurred in the hospital which might have been preventable. And that led us down the path of looking at uh, you know, falls and medication errors and things, the things that are common adverse events and particularly when um, patients are, um, are significantly ill can precipitate uh, a bad outcome. So what is all this about? It's about, we have to move the conversation from an interesting study which was done uh, nationally using a certain methodology um, which which wasn't replicated in the hospital, to using the hospitals, yes. developing and putting in place some regular data collection at the hospital which would enable you to have that conversation. And we picked on, um, on death and death orders and, uh, and started the conversation there and that led us into um, more work on adverse medication events and falls and pressure injuries. At the same time, the health department ran its um, first pressure injury study around about the late 90s and um, so there was building up a little bit of support and reinforcement from the 
uh, from the department level, if you like, uh, for the need to um, start to monitor these things. Yeah. And did that make a difference to clinicians using their own data to something their own patients? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think so. In those days, um, the I think the prevailing philosophy and, and my belief was that if if we could collect and put in front of clinicians data that was um, uh, reasonably verifiable and reasonably accurate, clinicians would take it on board and respond accordingly because no clinician gets out of bed in the morning to be a poor practitioner um, and they don't like to be you know, the second best in their field or offering average quality care. They all want to provide the best care they can to their patients. The challenge is that up until the late 90s, there were no um, robust, reasonable information systems that would give them timely information. So even when you're doing all it's often you're doing all this for six months out of date and you're just scratching your head trying to wonder who Mary Smith was and what, what happened to her. But, so data, data, data is what was needed then. The sense was that if you put the data in front of clinicians, they would in good faith take them on board, um, respond, correct it where it was in error and, uh, and their engagement would build. So while you were to be treated as a safe health, you were also the Deputy Chair of the Australian Council for Safety and Quality and Healthcare and Chair of the Victorian Quality Council. So both giving you the opportunity to make a difference at that policy level as we were talking before, that sort of system level. But so what started your strategic thinking about the quality and safety in these roles? And what was different to your thinking as a Chief Executive? Um, I suppose what uh, I believed and still believe is that there sort of needs to be an alignment between the policy direction at the federal and state level and um, and that will enable uh, boards and chief executives to um, do more about implementing uh, on the ground uh, initiatives that are consistent with that policy direction. So I suppose I, in the end, ultimately, I believe that um, meaningful change generally happens on the ground because so often it's a negotiation between um, clinicians, clinicians and managers um, working in a particular situation and all the situations are subtly different. Um, and so, so it's a negotiation about what happens there and how people respond to the particular situations that they uh, confront but we all should be moving in a consistent direction. So in other words, it seems to me obvious that we, if based on the studies that have been done here and elsewhere, we understand that there is um, a high incidence of um, uh, hospital-acquired um, uh, incidents or uh, even up to death, and that the common causes are medication errors and pressure injury and falls and the like, we ought to have a strategy at all of our institutions to understand the prevalence and to do something to try and diminish it. So I think it was more about, um, in my days in both of those councils, um, advocating upwards to politicians um, at the state and the federal level 
to get some resource support into this, to use that resource to try and stimulate interest in the development of systems locally um, in the belief that um, uh, we were about, you know, a, a sort of systems change initiative here to try and um, raise the importance of these um, issues locally and encourage local solutions to these problems and I guess by doing that we were gradually seeing improvement across the board in um, things which were major problems. Yeah. So given that it's, it's around about 10 years since you were in like, those council roles, with the benefit of hindsight and your experience since then, is there anything that you would have done differently or that the council could have done differently at the time to make a, a bigger impact? Um, if I had my time again, I would just put so much more effort and resource into measuring. Yeah. You know, I think uh, the approach um, worked well in in terms of raising awareness of safety and quality issues and getting uh, engagement uh, very broadly, really, um, in um, initiatives to deal with the common. Um, the kind of mishaps in hospitals. I think what it what it struggled to do was to get any sort of um, sustainability and longevity in those initiatives. So the initiatives, uh, I think, came and were important so long as the, the funding and the attention was directed to them. Then another wave of um, of issues would come along and supplant management attention, and some of those things would fall into disuse. And since we didn't really have any um, any consistent monitoring um, uh, metrics, uh, and, and this has been a sort of ongoing, there is no equivalent in safety and quality to the income statement and the balance sheet, really. So, still to this day, I get you know annual detail on the finances, but it's a real struggle to get consistent benchmarkable information on safety and quality issues, yeah. even today. Yeah. So in in those days, in the late nineties, early noughties, things were much um, much more of a challenge. And if I had my time again, I'd put much more investment into um, measuring outcomes. That would be where I would put my investment. Yeah. And, you know, to this day, that's a real that's a very patchy uh, area of endeavour in Australia. Yeah, certainly, is. and we seem to have had several goes at it. Mm. Still not quite there. So you then went on to be um, chief executive. Um, uh, in, uh, in high-level positions in both the NHS and in CAPA, the National Health Authority there. Are those the same challenges in other countries and, and was there anything that you were able to, to bring back from your roles there that, 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 um, that was new or different or, or was really helpful so that you could implement it back in Australian hospitals? Um. Well, I first worked for the UK in, in um, 2004, and um, when I arrived there, um, the Bristol Royal Infirmary Inquiry uh, had the same level of attention that the Real Staffordshire Inquiry has now. Um, and um, I think the uh, the answer that had uh, had emerged out of that 
and that inquiry was um, much tighter uh, monitoring and uh, compliance regime. So the um, uh, Health Care Commission was in its ascendancy then and star ratings for um, various aspects of, um, of compliance. And um, the star ratings um, were an important component of the target regime, which was then invoked in the NHS. And um, uh, this was a time when um, the uh, then Health Minister had made it very clear that um, you needed to um, you needed to achieve various levels of star ratings across various areas uh, as a chief executive and as a board, and if you didn't, then they'd find someone else who could. So there wasn't a lot of tolerance of failure. So there was. Um, I was really impressed with um, uh, some of the um, measured regimes that the NHS had invested in and implemented to um, monitor uh, uh, compliance and performance against targets. And the one I remember most vividly is the um, emergency access target. And they had a target of, um, well, they, they estimated that when I arrived there, it was something like uh, 80 or 85% of folk needed to be seen and treated and, um, and uh, sent to wherever they needed to go within four hours in the emergency department. And then they knocked it up in uh, a year or two years up to 98% and um, uh, of course this issue of um, emergency access is a window into the whole organisation and opened up that whole discussion of flow. So they did two things that were, were, were very impressive. First of all they invested through um, they invested in leadership and uh, management um, through um, through an innovations program, and they invested in systems to um, plot um, in real time what was going on in the emergency department. So I remember sitting in my strategic health authority, and we had six emergency departments in my uh, section of London, and we could see in real time, you know, how close they were to um, to uh, getting into trouble, and we had algorithms that told us that if they were you know, a certain number of patients had gotten up to here that they were inevitably going to go into default against their target. And we had a little squad of people that we could go out and help them. So this was all very sophisticated and a very different relationship between uh, the department or the regional office of the department and the providers. So um, this combination of um, data in real time uh, and um, management training and a sort of a collaboration around achievement of um, particular targets I thought was um, uh, uh, really attractive and really good. The part that was less attractive I think was the sort of more heavy handed um, approach to uh, well you know if you don't if you don't succeed in meeting these targets there's going to be a punitive approach taken here. So um, that was uh, my time in the in the UK. There are other things in the UK were just emerging in those days. Um, there was the uh, patient safety uh, agency that had, was just starting to uh, collect consumer information on their experience of health services. Um, and uh, there was the, um, the whole move to um, foundation trust increased independence and autonomy uh, of the hospitals. Uh, and 
themselves. There was a massive investment in information and information technology, um, which um, started to uh, improve the availability of health information. So all of these things are important changes. Mm -hmm. And then um, moving to Qatar, um, they were sort of at the other end of the spectrum. They had no systematic collection on safety and quality. So it was really going back to the basics there and just um, starting to introduce robust collections around hospital morbidity data that one could use to um, the OG group patients, they um, they had just started to embark on uh, hospital accreditation also to um, through um, JCI to uh, I guess strengthen the basic um, governance and um, process and procedure standards of the hospital. So a different challenge there. Yeah. Other things that we had to work on there were um, uh, professional uh, regulation and registration to ensure that. Um, the um, healthcare professionals were safe to practice mm. uh, pharmacy registration and regulation to ensure that the drugs that were uh, coming into the country were what they purported mm. to be. Mm. So just yeah, a, a fascinating uh, yeah. insight into mm. different, a whole lot of different challenges yeah. about um, safety and quality. Mm. Yeah. And Michael, I think the question people often ask from far, having heard about the UK initiatives you've described and, and the many others of course. Um, in the end, were their patients better off for all of that investment and, and the things that they were doing well as you've described? Um, well, there is some evidence on that. So a lady called, um, they, they did a, um, a health atlas there, a lady called Beth Redeem that did that work. Did a, she did a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in the late 90s that looked at the extent to which um, doctors and hospitals implement uh, evidence-based practice and sort of found somewhat you know, sensationally that it happens up in about 50% of the time. So only in about 50% of the time do we do what we know we should do. And she did a similar exercise in the UK to try and plot whether there was uh, evidence of improvement over the sort of five years mm -hmm. of, um, of investment in improved um, clinical governance and, and um, the like that we put in it. And the answer was that there was some improvement, some modest improvement. It, was, um, it was, uh, wasn't universal, but it was clearly there. Um, so I think uh, that reinforced the policy direction they were on at that time. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's been a lot of water flowing under the bridge since then, and a few more, um, a few more um, high-profile cases of clinical governance failure, which uh, have been, I think, uh, policymakers and the citizenry in the UK question how successful this, yeah. these initiatives have been. And um, I mean, just. It does go to show that notwithstanding the fact that you can have um, sound policy and a sound supportive uh, environment, it is possible for um, um, organisations to sort of bypass those sorts of things or, yeah. if you like, um, gain the system yeah. to appear to be yeah. compliant but not really compliant. Yeah.
And so you bring all that back to your current role of working in the private sector as chief executive of Cabrini Health. So when you first came here, what did you look at to ascertain, you know, a bit of a flavour of the, the, the level of quality and safety of patient care? Um, well, I, I first looked at um, the systems that were in place, really. So, it's the basic elements of what I would regard as sound clinical governance. Um, so, did the board pay attention to patient safety and quality and did they receive metrics and uh, reporting on uh, patient safety and quality, even if it was only anecdotal reporting about um, incidents. Um, in, in a routine management sense, what were the um, data collections that we used to assess um, patient safety and quality and um, who saw that information? And, um, you know, was there any evidence that um, either uh, strategic or operational plans or annual managers performance plans had anything in them about uh, improving uh, patient safety and quality. And um, you know, the answer to those questions was no in the main. Um, uh, Cabrini had and uh, still has a good track record in um, ACHS accreditation and uh, participating in the indicated programs and the like. But I suppose the biggest difference was that um, you know, there were minuscule resources put into this. So I think we sort of had a quality office of about half a person, really. Um, and um, uh, the, um, there weren't any routine uh, data collections. So even though we were collecting data on the clinical indicators, they weren't going anywhere. Yeah. And, um, so in a way, those things are relatively easy to fix, you know, and uh, I suppose the, the path we've been on over the last uh, four years has, has just been to address those, um, those issues and move patient safety and quality um, to a position of equivalence with um, uh, doctor engagement and, um, you know, fin sound financial management and um, support of our mission and values. You know, it's, up there as one of those key four planks now. And I think that would be the single biggest difference. It hasn't been hard to do. The culture here is quite receptive to it. Um, but it can't, it can't exist on the compassion and goodwill of clinicians alone in the absence of some uh, proper systems and processes and protocols and some measurement. So that's been the job of the last three or four years, really, to get to retrofit those systems yeah. to support the good intention of the clinicians. Yeah, yeah. And I guess also to encourage and reward the good intention, like provide the resources and systems yeah. to support them and yeah. to recognise what they do. Yeah. Well, that they agree in the quality of safety and they've got your talents, really. Yeah. Are there any non-negotiables for you in terms of what absolutely probably must be in place? To assure safety and quality, we talked about measurement. Clearly, that's one of them. Well, I think measurement for me is the is almost the beginning and the end point. Really, yeah. I just think if I could summarise my experience of the 
pretty unusual on this. It is that it's um, it's really hard to get anywhere if you don't have some form of vision. If you don't, you know, these days when we think of change and change management, um, we're really talking about players who study at projects at the, at the workplace, which requires someone who's um, has the time and capacity to collect data um, uh, to store it you know, in a way that's searchable and retrievable and to get back to staff and um, and to introduce that sort of um, uh, that culture of, of measurement of your performance and reflective clinical practice. Um, so that's what you've got to get happening at the, at the coal face and then that will, um, if you like, uh, build up to reporting at the board level and I hope over time, much more um, public reporting of uh, publicly available reporting of these sorts of performance indicators. You know, we've now introduced and participated in a, in a, a benchmarking process with um, Catholic Health Australia, which is based on the old um, health roundtable process that we were founding part of at the Alfred in uh, back in those in the day. Um, so those things are very powerful, I think, and. Um, now, once you start getting some data and you can present the data to the board on, on your latest benchmarking report, and the board will say, well, why is it that we're not doing as well as St Vincent's, or we, you know, why is it that we're doing better over here, why is our dosage rate low, or why, why have we had more falls? And they're the conversations that you need to be having, really. And, you know, those conversations now, I'm happy to say, are pretty commonplace. You also have to follow through. Yeah. Because the conversations, the data's great, the conversations are critical, then someone has to do something about them. And so for you, are there any particular methods or approaches to achieving that real grassroots change or it counts that, that you think are sort of enduring methods that sort of work for you and that you've kept over a long period? Um. I've always had a view that you need to, um, as a chief executive, you need to focus on the middle managers really. I mean, I have the ones who are going to do it for you or not do it for you. So here we've um, invested quite a lot of time and effort in, in developing middle managers, a range of skills across the board, including clinical governance skills. And it's not only technical skills, it's, it's, it's talking about why it's so important uh, that that they see themselves as leaders in the workplace uh, and facilitators and enablers um, to get this thing happening. I, um, I'm not a great believer in the one-size-fits-all approach, so I tend to think that um, the reason I put the emphasis on, on the local unit managers is I think that each unit is different. It's great if they can come up that take sufficient ownership to come up with their own initiatives. At my level, I need some things that roll up to the executive level report about are we doing any better than we were, we were six months ago and what's our own for the next six months. And I need to report that to my board. Um, but in my view, I, that all makes much more sense and I can do that much more easily if there's sort of energetic engagement at the uh, local manager level and at the work level. So that's where we put our efforts, Kathy, and if I, you know, if I had my, I, I think I've, I've learned that relatively early on that really it's, it's not possible 
to make this happen in a top-down way, you have to get you have to get that engagement from your middle managers. Yeah. Interesting in private that the doctors are hard at work yeah. in the sense that they're not hard. They're not. It's not hard work getting them um, philosophically over the line. It's just that um, you know we don't employ them; they're private individuals, and um, they're not enamoured of uh, paperwork that they see is superfluous to their requirements. So you know there's a, there's a lot of energy and effort that that uh, goes into engaging the doctors in the mm -hmm. private sector environment uh, with patchy success. Um, and it's a much different proposition than when you don't use a, a salary, if you like, yeah. as in the public sector. And is it, is it data, is it measurement? Is it, is it their results that, that brings them to the table? Do you think? Yeah. Is there anything else to be able to, to do? Well, I think we've, we've woken up to the idea of um, investing more in, um, in data crunches and auditors and the like. So, you know, that in, in, in a public hospital, much of that work is done by registrars and residents. There are very few registrars and residents in a, in a large private hospital like this. So you've got to invest in someone who will um, uh, collect or at least um, interpret and present the data back to them. Um, once they've got the data, I, I think they are very readily engaged. And, you know, even more so, I think, in private than in public. They, they're driven by their, of course they're driven by their professional ethics across the board, but it's also their business here. You know, they, they uh, have to be able to demonstrate um, that their performance is at least up with contemporary best practice. So, uh, in a way, the sort of um, elements for engagement are all there, but you need the data to make it happen. And talking about, you know, clinicians as, as leaders, more difficult as you see in the private sector because they're in and out, so they're, not, they're not living there if you like, but particularly that middle management sector. What are the essentials that, that those middle managers have to um, develop? What are, the, what are the skills, what are the characteristics that, that turn them from being a manager into a leader of safety and quality? Um, well, I think I think they need to understand um, a bit of the theory. So uh, I, I think they need um, conceptualise what's important in terms of patient safety and quality on their watch in their unit. So it's different from uh, for a nurse, uh, a nurse manager in the intensive care unit and uh, the supervisor of our um, of our um, hotel staff. So there's a bit of um, work that needs to be done there about how you translate theory into action. And then I think uh, a bit of work is, needs to be done about... We've, I, I think you need a, a change management approach. So here we have um, used lean uh, to, to do that sort of um, to do that thing, thing. So we can sort of... We train people up on the basics of learning, they don't have to become black belters, but they do have to understand why we, um, you know, how we identify opportunities for change, how we use um, and change cycles to get people engaged. So I don't think you can just expect people will come naturally to this. I think there's more to it than just, you know, a fine character and good luck. You've got to invest 
you serious about your middle managers being the backbone of your organisation in this and in other areas? You have to invest in their development. Um, why? After the resources and the initiatives that have, have um, been uh, siphoned into healthcare quality and safety over the last, say, 20 years, quality and safety healthcare started nearly 20 years ago, then we still harm an estimated 10% of our patients and still give many examples of poor care and services. So, you know, why is it hard, really? Well, I think it's com really complex. And um, it's just getting more complex. You know, uh, we have, uh, I, I can speak for the system, but the average age of the patients that we're caring for is going up and up. The sort of the level of um, uh, the level of complexity of their conditions and their sort of coexisting chronic conditions is going up. The other thing that's happened is the system itself is more complex, and there's this great. Um, might have seen this great uh, YouTube uh, TED talk by Alfred Gawande, who sort of says, like, back in the 1970s, you were in hospital, that two physicians looking after you, a nurse, and the doctor who poked his nose in every now and then. Now, the average is something like 15. Uh, there's specialists of this, specialist nurses of that, allied health professionals. It is incredibly complex. So, where um, we are continuing to try and adapt our system to uh, absorb and cope with um, the complexity of what's being presented to us. The knowledge that we have about what is the right thing to do has burgeoned, but we are still learning how to effectively turn that knowledge in, in, with a complex system that's largely uh, inherited into a modern service delivery system. So the real challenge today is about design uh, or redesign, if you like, um, of a system the, the characteristics of which are largely historical. Still, you know, the professional boundaries are still largely historical. Sure, we've got more multidisciplinary teams, but uh, there aren't a whole lot of those multidisciplinary teams that work like a model or a machine. There's still sort of professional sort of uh, silos in there. So there's a, it's a complex system with a lot of challenges and the presenting problems with the patients are becoming more complex. Um, so the challenge for us as senior managers is to try and differentiate what is standard evidence-based practice that we should be able to routinely do time and again with a low error rate, a low incident rate, from stuff that is complex and needs the best and the brightest in the system to be paying attention and customising the care because um, you know the evidence base is weak, the patient situation is volatile, things are changing. You know, that sort of differentiation I think is is starting to happen now in the more advanced systems if you like. Uh, and I think we'll see a lot more of that over the coming years. We'll get we'll start to routinise the standard work and direct more of our attention and resources to the complex stuff. Yes, because we'll have to. We'll have to. Resources, there's there's time in no other way. Yeah. I'm sure there is, but we have to sort of manage this. We'll have to. I mean, it'll be... It does raise the whole question of, you know, are we getting towards the end of life, the end of the sort of useful life of the of the big hospital that does a bit of everything. Yeah. And are we, are we looking at a time where we have more 
of a focused factory type approach um, for high volume, low to medium complexity work. Um, I think there's, um, you can see on the horizon system redesign um, uh, opportunities or physical facility redesign opportunities, clinical pathway redesign opportunities. And there are some fantastic examples of places that have gone down this path and are getting um, demonstrably um, better outcomes. Yeah. So Michael, just to, to finish up, um, a couple of quick questions. I think people listening will be very keen to know what defines you as a leader. What what is it that you do? What is it that you exhibit that makes you a leader in safety and quality in your organisation? <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, I occupy the position of chief executive, so people do people do expect me to uh, have some sort of something to say about the topic. But um, look, I, I guess I have an interest in this, um, and I think well, I, I believe that it's um, I believe ultimately it's the most important thing that we do. The most important thing we do is we care for patients and families and we want to give them the best possible chance of having a good outcome. And so I guess for me personally that, that interests me more than whether or not we make a profit or a loss out of that particular admission. Now of course my sort of license to saying the job is not making year after year losses so I can't forget that. But the real intellectual challenge, I think, is how can we improve the, the um, outcomes for the patients and the families we serve. And, um, so I guess um, that interests me personally, and I suppose that comes across when, uh, when I talk to my board or I talk mm -hmm. to uh, my executive team or staff generally. Yeah. Yeah. Almost because of the complexity, because of the challenge. Yeah. It, it is a great challenge. It is. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think. You know, every day there are little things that you can, uh, we can do collectively here. Um, and there are always ideas, we do lots of walk-arounds here, and there are always ideas that staff have to improve things, you know. In fact, you know, once, once you can get that happening in your organisation, there's not a lot, it's not a lot that I have to do really, other than collect these things and put a few of them into action. And, um, that's a great place to be, really. But you know, so you have to create that environment. Yeah. That's the challenge. Yeah, as you said, it doesn't happen. But through goodwill, even though we have a lack of goodwill itself, and mm. you think the health runs on goodwill to a certain extent, but yeah, there's a few ingredients. Yeah. So as you said. Did anyone ever give you a good piece of advice, Michael, about improving safety and quality or leading safety and quality? Or, or is, is there anyone that, that you saw that inspired you in that way? Um, well, I mean, I've been lucky, really, in working with lots of mm. uh, interesting and inspiring people over the years. I've always, I've always found um, uh, Donald Berwick a bit of a, an inspiring person. He's a very charismatic person, speaks very well um, about um, the challenges of uh, safety and quality, so it's hard to hard to argue um, uh, with that approach. Um, and I think, um, you know, I've also learned a lot from um, fellow uh, chief executives around uh, 
Australia and around the world really on issues that they put in place. Um, but I don't know if there's any person, I don't know, that I can't think of a life on the road uh, to Damascus. So I, have, I, I do have, I mean we all have sort of experiences, I think those of us who practice clinically about um, that have sort of shaped our attitudes about safety and quality. And I certainly, um, I certainly recall uh, in my younger days as a, um, as an intern resident registrar, um, things like the um, ridiculous work hours we then had to, um, we then had to uh, face up to. And this was in the pre-award days, and so you worked um, very, very long hours. And I remember being, you know. Pulled out of bed at all hours of the night, and for the life of me, not remembering what I said over the phone because you, you just, you know, you've got insufficient rest. Or, and then uh, how that um, how that sort of um, tiredness translated into the way you dealt with uh, patients and families in terms of giving them advice and uh, support with their illness. You know, I remember, you know, I remember those things, um, and they. I, th I think that experience of being um, in an occupational relationship where you are um, supporting and advising patients about the best course of action, um, you know, has a powerful impact on on how you think about safety and quality of the job that clinicians have to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, just know that you've experienced. Yeah. Yeah, and I have that little that always says. Yeah. Uh, and finally. We're speaking primarily here to the clinical um, leadership in quality and safety um, participants here in Victoria. Any advice to them as they develop and practice their skills in leading safety and quality improvement? Um, well, I think that um, I think that it's important to um, feel a sense of passion about what you do, really, and um, I'm sure that many of those things will do that. Um, then the second sort of challenge is um, uh, influencing really and um, that generally means influencing senior components of your management um, and influencing your clinicians. And, um, I think that's, uh, that's a subtle and important challenge that goes beyond the technical skills required to do your job. It's about um, thinking about how you can achieve change when Often um, it might seem that your secondary importance and other things are more are more pressing. Um, but the good news is that um, time is on your side, the evidence is on your side. I think that um, uh, if we set aside Australia for a moment, if you look at the changes in the United States associated with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, the amount of patient-centred information that is going to now become uh, routinely collected that will go towards the discussion on patient outcomes and what works and doesn't work will dwarf anything that's gone before. So, and I, I think we will follow suit in Australia in the not too distant future if we can get the you know, electronic health record up. We'll start to get um, the, the possibility of large-scale data mining and more information about what works and what doesn't work. So. The good news is that for people who are working in, um, in areas of uh, clinical practice improvement, safety and quality, uh, service design, um, we're moving from a sort of rel relative 
gives a bit of information and a lot of stuff based on anecdote and, um, and, and sort of uh, relatively remote academic papers until a time when we can get more real-time information that's relevant to the services that you want to deliver. Dr. Michael Walsh, thank you very much for sharing your time and we'd like to see you with us today. Thank you, Kathy.